You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Well, good morning, everyone. As Coy said, my name's Matt. It's a real pleasure to be here. 
Uh, generally on a Sunday, I travel around the different sites because I oversee children's and youth ministry across our movement. So I've actually been here at West before uh, in City Kids. I've never actually been in a service. That's so a special privilege to be here with you today as well as to be able to speak. I've got to admit, though, uh, just as we sort of get to know one another, let's be honest, it was less of a privilege when I found out what I was preaching on. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a depressing Bible reading. <laughs> a few months ago, Luke asked me to preach, and then a couple of weeks ago, he said, look, I'm actually going to be on annual leave. This is a good week. Have you looked at the Bible reading yet? I looked at it. Uh, the passage goes from Exodus chapter 20 after the Ten Commandments, through to chapter 23, and my Bible imaginatively calls this miscellaneous laws. And I started reading those chapters, and uh, my attention span's not what it used to be. I sort of skipped ahead a little bit, I'll admit. <laughs> I thought, where's, where's the meat? What does one do with this passage? And that, I think, is the main point. What do we do with that? And so I started thinking, started researching, and I ended up getting back to, to Luke and said, I think I'd like to talk on how do we as Christians relate to the Old Testament law? And Pastor Luke, God bless him, said, I was hoping you'd say that, but I didn't want to ask. <laughs> so that's where we're going today. What do we do with these miscellaneous laws? How do we as Christians relate to them? I think it's an important question. I think it's a pertinent question. I think there's value for us both personally and publicly. Because as Christians trying to sort of at times speak up for what we believe, particularly as we start thinking about a left and right political series, People might say, well, how can you say that? And we might say, it's not just me, it's God. It comes from God's word. Whereabouts in God's word? And what if the answer is something like Leviticus? Our world is cluey enough to say, well, you might use this part of the Bible to maybe stand against certain expressions of sexuality, but how then do you, you ignore this part of the law? We eat prawns. Well, we have different types of material in our clothing. There's laws about men not cutting your sideburns to, to let them grow long. I break that one. We want to be consistent. So how then should we relate to the law? It's a big question, and I don't have time, of course, this morning to say everything there is about the topic. So if you have questions, please feel free to follow me up after the service if you'd like to talk more. But what we're going to do now is we're going to look at a couple of different approaches, how Christians should relate to the law. I'm going to offer an alternative, and then we're going to open up to that passage and try and apply some of those things. So you can leave your Bible just to the side for the moment as we start to think about how as Christians should we relate to the Old Testament law. The first approach that Christians sometimes use is that we are under it. We need to keep the commandments. We are under law. I've spent a lot of time in my life actually in the Mormon church. And that's an example of what this might look like. 
I meet with Mormon missionaries at the moment trying to talk about Jesus Christ. And so I've been given a number of sort of pamphlets and I, I, I brought in three of them today. The restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Talking about how God instituted priests and we still need them in the church today. That might not be particularly appealing to you or convincing. Maybe this one. Here's why we should tithe. Tithing is an Old Testament law thing. Is that something you've ever wondered about practicing? The word of wisdom. How to think about and approach those Old Testament food laws. It's interesting that Coy started talking about Daniel. And there are Christians today that say, well, there's things in there about the food laws that still apply to us today. Such people are sometimes called theonomists. It's a big word. <laughs> it literally comes from theo, meaning God, and nomos or nomi, meaning law. God's law still applies to us. We should keep it. There are passages in the Bible that also seem to suggest that the law has relevance for us today. James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, wrote in the second chapter of his epistle, whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. It's an argument that underlines our need for consistency. We can't pick and choose through the law. The Apostle Paul argues this in the book of Galatians, where the church was tempted to go into circumcision. They thought, oh, it's no biggie. And he said, no, 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 once you go back under the law, you need to keep it all. And he who puts himself under the law is under the Lord's judgment. Do you really want to go there? And so Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, you are not under law, but under grace. Are Christians under the law? Well, that's one approach. But a more common one is that we're not under the law. Romans 6 just said that. We're not under the law, but under grace. What then do we do with it, though? If we're not under it, what does that exactly mean? I was reading a writer this week who said, come on, do we really believe in a God who cares about a bronze statue in our living room? Is our picture of God so small and petty that you honestly think he cares if you've got a stone Buddha in your garden like your neighbour or when you went to New Zealand and you bought a little tiki? Do you think God really cares about that? But where does one draw the line? If we're not under law, does that mean we can have other gods? Does that mean we can murder? I assume you know the answer is no. And the law, as the Apostle Paul points out again, has a very helpful function for us. It shows us fences. It shows us boundaries. It says, here's where you can't go. Here's what you can't do. 
In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, how would I know what coveting is unless the law explained it to me and pointed out this is not good? If we're not under law, then how can it serve in that way? And there's a number of New Testament epistles that that talk about antinomianism, anti-law Christians. Well, if we're not under the law, can we just sin so that grace might abound? Do you know the answer to that? By no means, he says. So we're not under the law, but it's a bit awkward to say we're not not under the law. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, we know that the law is good if one uses it rightly. What's the right use then? Which brings us to our third approach. I like to call this a little from column A, a little from column B. It's the Anglican approach. Right there in the middle, uh, well, maybe we're under the law, but maybe we're not. Maybe we're under some parts. And this is a camp where a lot of Christians land up in. You might keep some of them. I was at a city on a hill the other day where they were talking about the, the Sabbath and why we need to keep it. Tithing, um, maybe that's, that appeals to you. But there are other ones and we think, oh, they, they don't quite. But a way that Christians in the past have approached the Old Testament law is to then divide it up into different areas. This happened in the early church. They spoke about the ceremonial law, the civic law, and the moral law. Ceremonial are those sort of food laws and sacrifice ones, and they say, well, we're not under those anymore. Jesus has fulfilled those. The civic law, though, that's like the law for the nation of Israel. We belong to the nation of Australia. And so that law doesn't apply to us. But the moral law, that's a law for all time. That shows us what is good and what is evil. And that part of the law we must keep. I think this approach is quite appealing. But also somewhat problematic. Who decides which category? (laughs) The Sabbath is the classic example of this. Is it ceremonial? Well, yes. In Exodus 23, part of our our long Bible passage that we're in today, the Sabbath is in there. And if you're to keep it, then you're also to keep the fact that every year you're meant to take part in Jerusalem of one of the major feasts. Maybe then we put the Sabbath in the civic category. It was a law for ancient Israel. We saw that even in Exodus when God's people were gathering the manna and told not to go out on the Sabbath. But its existence in the Ten Commandments makes some people say, well, no, it's a moral law. It points forward to the day when we will enjoy eternal rest with our Father in heaven. When our strivings will cease And we will rest knowing it's not by work, but by his grace. Which category is it? Who decides? 
even as I was working through these chapters in Exodus, it struck me that some people do approach this exact passage in this way, but there are verses in there about how to build altars and it flows into how to treat slaves and then it flows into how to respect your mum and your dad. It's just not that straightforward. How then as Christians should we relate to the Old Testament law? There are three different approaches with with positives and negatives to them. So I wanted to put forward an alternative, a way to think about even the word law. In ancient Israel, they divided their their scriptures, the, the Old Testament, into law or Torah, prophets and writings. And I think that word Torah is worth just reflecting on. Originally, the word meant point. And we can point in different ways. Forgive me for this. Uh, I'm going to point at this gentleman right here. If you're a bit closer, this would probably be rather confronting. <laughs> it's, it's an accusatory way of interacting with someone. If I wiggle my finger, it's <laughs> potentially judgmental. I teach my kids, don't point at someone. And that is one of the ways to understand Torah. It is law. It does accuse. It does judge. But another way to understand the word point is just to to indicate, to direct. Where's pancake parlour? Well, if you head out of the cinema and down the stairs, along the, uh, the hallway, swing through Hoyts and then turn right, you'll be there roundabout, if I've got my directions somewhat right, outside the glass doors there in the sort of courtyard. No one's offended when I point like that, I hope. And I think we need to remember that the law functions in both ways of pointing. In the Psalms, we looked at them last year, when ancient Israel reflected on their law, they used different synonyms. Sometimes they said laws and judgments, commandments. And sometimes they said instructions, guidelines, counsel. Counsel is very different from commandments, isn't it? But both are ways that we relate to the law. Well, what then, as we look at Exodus 21, our particular Bible reading today, will it look like if we apply this approach, this alternative? Let me give you a few examples. Firstly, the sort of accusatory, judgmental way. Honestly, what was your impression when we had that Bible reading? The colours, the words, it's hardly uplifting, was it? Particularly that phrase, he shall die. (laughs) He shall be put to death over and over again in each verse. The Lord does accuse and judge us. It points the finger squarely at us. 
And so the first way I think we need to understand the law is it actually should lead us to praise. You might be surprised to hear me say that. But praise God (laughs) that I am not under that judgment. That the law is no longer used to accuse me. In Colossians, we're told Jesus has disarmed the powers that are against us that use the law to point the finger at us and say guilty. This week, I've been at a conference uh, that was preaching through Romans 8. And you might know the first verses of that famous chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We've got that tension in the New Testament of the law being good, but also described as the law of sin and death. That's the sense where we're not under law anymore. We're going to sing some songs in a moment. Praise God that we need not fear the judgment to come. Thank God that we have no doubt about our future. Praise him that we need not be read these passages and feel ashamed. We can praise God for as, as Paul says in Romans 7, who will set us free from this body of death? Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. And so the second thing I think that this applies to, second way it applies to us, is that the law should lead us to praise, but it also should lead us to Jesus. That's tied up there so closely in that first one, but I think it's worth just reflecting upon. Because as Christians, it's not like just, well, Jesus did it, but what about me? As we just read there, In Romans 8, we are in Christ Jesus. If he has fulfilled the law, if he has satisfied God's just demands, so have you. It's done. You have kept the law. When God looks at you in Christ Jesus, he sees righteousness. He sees the commandments ticked. How do we relate to the law? Well, it leads us to praise. It leads us to Christ. And finally, it should lead us to wisdom. As we look at some of these specific miscellaneous laws, there are different ways they might make us wise. The first one is it makes us wise to who God is and what God values. As we look at these laws, a lot of them are quite negative. Let's put it out there. But they also talk about what is good. They promote particular virtues. So our Bible reading today began in chapter 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. While it's in a negative form, it tells us what is good. Peace. 
life, non-violence. Also things like justice and equity. If someone is killed, it's life for life. You might have heard that in the Bible reading. And as we hear these things, it helps us understand who God is and what God is like. I moved down to Victoria during COVID last year. There are better times to make such a, such a transfer, let's be honest. And so I've actually been in my current house for nine months. And in that period, uh, because of lockdowns, kids home and having to work, my, myself and getting into the office, all that sort of stuff, my desk has changed four or five times in nine months. My, my favourite place where my desk has been is sitting here in front of a window looking into a little garden at the side of our house. I can see the sunshine even if I'm in another Zoom meeting. But more than that, I can see signs of life and beauty. The blossoms and the buds are starting to come out. The leaves are coming back on the trees and bushes. And the little jumble of twigs up in the right-hand corner of my window that I thought was just, a, you know, the, the configuration of the vine there actually turns out to be a nest. And I can see the birds flying back in and throwing this bit out and, and fixing this bit, getting ready for spring. The law is a bit like that for us. It operates as a window into beauty and hope. It helps us glimpse God's good character and how good the life to come will be. The law makes us wise to what is good and what God is like, but the law also leads to our wisdom about what is not good and what we are like. When I have meetings at night and my desk is there and everything's dark outside, the light's behind me, I can't see the garden. I can just see myself. And sometimes when we look at God's law, we see God's law and what he loves. We see his good character. And sometimes we see ourselves and what we love. And the darkness is reflected back at us. The law promotes things and also forbids things. As I read this passage, I'm challenged. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. When I was a teenager, it was cool to say things negatively about your parents. I deserve that death. And so I need to change in light of Christ rescuing me from it. It might reflect ourselves back to us. Maybe it reflects the church back to us. I was struck this morning as I saw this verse uh, about whoever, verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. For years, the church practiced slavery like everybody else. But over time, it came to reflect through these verses, this is not right. 
We need to get this out of our midst. The law makes us wise to God, to ourselves, but also to the world we live in. Verse 22. When two men are fighting together and one hits a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. I was was wrestling with that verse thinking, look, if, if I punch a pregnant woman so hard, her child comes out, harm has been done, right? But it's referring to the child that comes out if the child is harmed. And so again, as we start to prepare to think politically, theologically, left and right series coming, our world might say life in the womb is not important. It's the rights of the mother that are. And that is true and that is just. But this also makes me wise and says, no, life in the womb does matter. God values it. Harm to an unborn child is not good in his sight. The law makes us wise to God, to ourselves, to our world, and therefore how to live in it. There are principles in these things that we can apply. Like my brother here, uh, I was struck in the Bible reading about, well, I don't have an ox. It's never gored anyone. I'll be good on that one. But there's still stuff to get out of that law, isn't there? When we're in lockdown, where we got out of the house and we're walking, sorry, my wife was walking our dog on, on a beach where dogs are allowed. Our dog was on the leash and therefore we were just sort of in our own sort of little world enjoying the weather when this great big dog came up and started attacking ours. My wife didn't know what to do. A man probably seeing this ran over to help and so he picked up our dog, our little cocker spaniel, which turned on him and started biting him. What do we do? Well, the principles of this passage actually came into play, surprisingly. This man was a police officer who was out of uniform. Plain clothes, cop, on the beach, keeping an eye on this particular dog, which is known for attacking other people and other dogs. Although our dog bit him in the sort of frenzy of the moment, he could see that was a different situation. I don't know what happened to that other dog, but I do know that wisdom came into play and our dog was okay. He understood the moment. There are principles in these things which help us therefore navigate the things of life that we find ourselves in every day, unexpectedly or otherwise. So we've asked the question this morning, how as Christians should we relate to the Old Testament law? We've gauged a few responses there, but we've seen that the law sort of has two functions, the commandment and the counsel sides. And so it can give us instruction and direction, wisdom about God and ourselves, about the world and how to live in it. As we mine it for treasure, we we bring forth the principles as it describes and gives us a picture of what it looks like to please God. But we also recognise that the law exists to point us to praise, 
in Jesus Christ, God's son. Born under the law to redeem us from the law so that we indeed might be his children. Let me pray that we will have wisdom for how to live as God's children each day. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it shows us our sin so that we might turn to you for forgiveness and mercy. We thank you that we need not fear or doubt or feel shame for we have been washed by the blood of Christ and in him we have kept the law. We pray, therefore, Lord, that as we read these miscellaneous laws, as we seek to live our lives, we will keep our eyes fixed on Christ Jesus, but we'll also operate with wisdom, able to discern right and wrong, so that we might see more clearly your beauty, we might repent of our sin when we're confronted by it, And we might live in this world in a way that gives glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to read these laws and show our thanks to you. In the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.